This episode is brought to you by The Wanna Summit, the one day that's going to change your life. For more information, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And today we've got the topic that beats all topics. Now this is a big one, so hold on to your hat. It's a topic that affects all of us at some point in our lives. And I know for all three of us, we're going to share with you our own personal experiences about today's topic. So today's topic, let's reveal it. Let's lift the lid. It's about grief and grieving. Now, I'm going to hand over to Cindy, and she's going to share her own personal experiences around this. But over and above our own personal experiences, what we really want to convey today is ways that we can handle grief and grieving. And when does it actually apply in our lives? Because it's not just when somebody dies or somebody passes away. We suffer grief and grieving in a whole bunch of other sets of circumstances, and we really want to bring them out into the surface and bring them out into the light because I think there's a lot of times where we don't talk about our grief. There are a lot of occasions where we might feel an experience of loss around something, but we don't know that that feeling equals grief. We think it's something else. So I think today we'd really like to open up Pandora's box around this, explore what's in that box, what does grief actually mean, and then how do we handle it as human beings because it is a part of living. So Cindy, share with us your story and your experiences. Well, I think what you just said was opening up Pandora's box is is the way it was. And, you know, I've had a, a, I believe, a very fortunate life. You know, I've not had to handle really close grief up until uh, recently. Like, my mum was one of 11 children, and seven of them were boys, six of them are hemophiliacs, and during the 80s, when the blood transfusions that were being given to, the, to people with hemophilia were tainted with um, HIV, uh, all my uncles got HIV, of course, and um, they then ended up with AIDS, and we lost all my uncles, basically, to AIDS, as well as two of my aunts and one cousin. So I watched my mum grieve. But my mum was so strong, you know, she never, I never saw her cry, I never saw anything like that happen. She would go across to America and she'd deal with the brothers and, and, and nurse them. And then her mother died. And her mother died, um, it was six years ago now, her mother died. And I saw her grieve for the very first time. And the hardest thing for my mum was that she felt now that she was the matriarch of a huge family. And that was big for her. And I said to her, Mum, do you want to go to to Grandma's funeral? I'll I'll go with you. And she said, no, I'm too tired. And I thought, that's not like my mum. And then about a month later, my sister was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And my mum went into a frenzy, just trying to heal her and get her better. And then I noticed my mum started to get sick. And I I looked at her one day, it was like the May of that year, and I looked at her feet and I said, Mum, what's wrong? They're swollen. I've never seen your feet like that. And within the next week, she went to uh, the doctor and he diagnosed her with mesothelioma. What's that? It's a lung disease um, that's associated with asbestos. Oh, wow. So, yeah, she was diagnosed with that. And so we had my mum and my sister sick. and, And then... What happened was that my mum passed away very quickly. She just died within two, two to three months of diagnosis. And what was interesting around that same time was that Steve Irwin died. And Steve Irwin was a really good friend of ours. And he died a month before my mum. And then a girlfriend of mine rang me up who'd had breast cancer. And she said, I've got liver cancer. And she passed away in the February of the following year. And then my sister died three weeks later after that. And then after that, my mother-in-law had a stroke and died 10 days later. So I remember my husband ringing me up and saying, I'm over this death thing. I don't want to do any more. Oh, it mm. just gets too much. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 that, that's too much to cope with. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it did get a, it, it got so much. And, and what was interesting is that 
it started with the death of a dog, actually, of, of one of my dogs that died. It's, that's where it started, and mm. it was almost like it just kept going and going and going. So when you lose five really important females in your life, you know, I lost three generations very quickly. My grandma, my mother, my sister, mm. my mother-in-law, and then a girlfriend. And when you lose five really important women in your life, you begin to question. You really question, what is this all about? What is my life about? What's the purpose of my life? What happens when we die? And I remember thinking about my mum after she passed away and going, well, where are you? You know, you're a Catholic, you believed in the afterlife, where are you? Are you in the ground? Is that where you're going to just stay? Or, you know, are you in heaven? Is there such a thing as heaven? You know, you get, you get angry. Mm. You actually get really angry. And um, so I was asking these questions and I had this amazing thing happened in the sky. I was looking up at the sky, yelling at her basically on a, in a field. And this, my mum's name is Janet, and this amazing jay came out of the clouds in, you know, like the clouds had separated and there was this jay that just came to me and I went, oh, wow. oh my gosh, is my mum telling me something? You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was absolutely amazing. I told my brother and he said, oh, every fisherman in the world would have been really happy then because they would have seen it as a sign, as a hook to go fishing. <laughs> oh, God, I love him. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I was really excited about my son. And he just yeah. And he goes and ruins the moment. <laughs> yeah. But it was in, what was interesting was after my mum and my sister passed away, about a couple of weeks after my sister passed away, I got really upset and I was with my girls. And I remember where I was. I was in a surf shop in Berry in um, New South Wales. And I remember just I lost it in the store and my girls threw me out of the store basically they packed me up and took me out of the store and they said mom mom are you okay i go yeah i'm fine next door there was a spiritual shop walked into the spiritual shop i don't know why walked straight to the left hand corner and there was a book and it was like take me take me and i read the back of the book and i went no i don't want to read it that doesn't it just was sounded too complicated you know the whole back was like and i put it away i drove home with my girls that day that I got home, so it took me you know, a couple of days to get home, but the day I got home, a very good friend rang me and said, I want to come around and see you. I have a book I'd like you to read. And it was that book. Oh, oh no way. Yeah, it was that book. Mm. So that was um, a book that led me on the most amazing experience of my life. And the most, you know what happened? I went from questioning to I have no questions anymore. I have absolute faith. I know where they are. I actually then passed the grief stage. I, you, know, you still grieve. I don't think you never stop because mm. you miss them so much. Mm. But I passed from that to peace. And it was a knowing peace, a loving peace, a peace that I knew I'd see them again. I knew where they'd gone. And from that book, I just kept reading book after book after book. So for me, what happened is what I needed to do was I had to find understanding about death because I hadn't really experienced it. Even though we had a lot of death in our family, I wasn't as close to my uncles as, of course, I was to my mum and my sister and and my grandma. So it was, I guess for me, what it did was I needed understanding. I kept reading until I got that understanding. And being brought up a Catholic... You know, the understanding you had there was nothing to what the understanding was I, what I got. Really? Yeah, it was very different. Well, one of the, the things, I guess the book that really put it on the ground for me, you know, like said, this is it, and really had great faith in it, was Dr. Brian Weiss's book, Many Lives, Many Masters. And I guess that was the one that, that really um, made me understand the whole thing. And he talks about reincarnation. Uh, and he talks about life between lives. And the Catholic Church did not teach that. But then when I talked to my dad, my dad said, well, in actual fact, Catholic t- Church did teach that back in the 16th century. They just stopped doing it. And his reasoning behind why they stopped doing it was that people would be bad in that life mm-hmm. because they knew they were going to have another life and they would just live it up and then decide, well, my next life's going to be fine. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the Catholic Church stopped um, preaching that. But that's, you know, I guess that's where I am now is that that's my belief is that I actually do believe that we keep coming back and back and back until we get it right. Do you think, just, just coming from there, do you think we do death well in the Western culture? 
Because my understanding and experience of death in places like India and, and Asia and places like that, it's quite a different uh, connotation around death and what it means, that it's, it is a celebration, a, a celebration of life. Um, they do believe in an afterlife. Uh, they do believe in things beyond, things are greater than what the life is here and now. And I'm wondering, you know, through my experiences, whether or not we actually talk about death very well or even... It's almost like we don't want it to happen, therefore we don't talk about it. And then when it does happen, we're shocked by it mm. um, and we're not prepared for it and we're not experienced by it. Um, I found, you know, for me personally, my, my nana died when I was nine years of age. That was my first experience of it. So my mother lost her mother at 26 years of age. And... And I remember when Nana died going to her funeral and I remember sitting there as a nine-year-old girl looking around this room and not having any idea what was being said or why or how. It was in a church and I just didn't get it. But there was something that felt very comfortable about it as well and I'm still not sure what that is except now looking back I realise when sadly my husband's sister took her life seven and a half years ago and I really debated whether to take my children to the funeral and because it was such a shocking death and it was such a shocking trauma for all of us. And, you know, there's no accidents in life, but I was at school one day really debating whether or not to take my children because I didn't want to harm them or, or, or make it worse for them in any way. And my children at the time, um, what are they now? They're 14 and 13, so what's nearly eight years ago? You'll have to do the maths for me. Um, but they were young. And I ran into a lady at school and she just said, oh, I'm really sorry I heard about you, you don't know me, but she was a, a psychologist, <laughs> there's no accidents. No. And she said to me, um, I asked her, I said to her, oh, gosh, I'm just not sure whether to take my children to the funeral, and she said, take them. If your children can experience death and, and what it's all about before the age of 12 or 13, she believed it was a very good and important part of their life and that they will have an acceptance or an understanding or a better interpretation of what death is if they can experience it young, which was the trigger for me wondering if that's how I was handling this tragic death, maybe a little bit better than what I thought I would have because of that experience when I was nine. And that was it. I decided to take my children. Um, Danny's mum decided it was a beautiful beautiful thing to do but in in New Zealand there's this wonderful the Maoris have an amazing way of of of, I I don't know if the celebration of death is right but honoring those that pass and Zara was actually in the lounge of of their house and people that wanted to come and say goodbye to her before the funeral were welcome to come it was quite an extraordinary I wasn't quite sure how I would handle it but I arrived and I explained to the children that their auntie, it's a shell now and we've got to understand her soul is no longer there so she might not, you know, she won't move, she won't. It was trying to get very raw and real. And when we arrived, my girlfriend had arrived at the same time. She got to the front door, saw the coffin in the lounge and just lost it. Turned around and walked out and said, I can't go in, I can't go in. No one made her wrong. No one said you should or you shouldn't. She just couldn't do it. And she still to this day said she's glad she didn't. I then stood there going, oh, my gosh, do I, do I take my children in? So I said, do you want to go in? And they both said, no, no, we don't, because they've just seen my girlfriend do this. I said, that's okay, that's okay. A few minutes later, Taylor came up to me and she said, Mummy, I want to see Auntie Zara. And I said, okay. So we went in. I'm trying really hard to hold it together. I'm trying to show them that death is nothing to be frightened of and... Yet I hadn't seen my sister-in-law in this position. And we walked in and this beautiful Maori woman was, was doing this blessing. And then Danny's grandmother, so Zara's grandmother as well, was standing next to the coffin and had leant over and kissed her on the forehead. It was one of those moments I wished I had, could have photographed and I could see it in black and white. And it was just so poignant, the loss, the, the grief, the immense pain everyone was in. And then my children came in and they looked at Auntie Zara and they saw her lying there and Jacob just freaked and he squeezed my hand. He goes, Mommy, I've got to go. So I took them both outside and, and, and I said, Are you go? Are you okay? Are you all right? And, and then the next minute Jacob turned around and goes, I really thought she was going to sit up and say boo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so, oh, God, it's such quite... a sombre moment. He comes up with something funny. <laughs> it was so sweet. And I said, oh, darling, she won't say boo. You know, she's not going to say that. 
within maybe five to ten minutes, the two of them had gone off into the garden and picked some flowers, and they decided that they wanted to take um, these flowers in. Now, within half an hour, Zara's younger children and my children were picking flowers, they'd written notes, and they were taking them and putting them in the coffin while this music was being played around her. It was one of the most amazing things I had ever experienced. Mm. And then the children started dancing and laughing around her coffin, which is really unusual to imagine. I know they were all very young, and they probably didn't quite comprehend the pain and the anguish that was going to follow. But it taught me in that moment that how we react is how we react, Mm. and it is okay. But I feel that they they may have got something out of it more than I'd imagine. You know, I think that's the beauty of children, is that within a half an hour, they had gone to acceptance. That's right. Whereas for an adult, because we're so busy making meaning about what that death means to us, what we did, our own self-blame and what that's going to mean in the lives of others and the impact and the ripple effect of a, certain, of a person's death, we go into this whole analysis paralysis in terms of the healing and the acceptance process. And it's that that actually stands in the way of us getting completion with a person's passing. Because the fact of the matter it is, death is as much a part of life as life is a part of life. It's just a part of it. It's like the sun is going to come up in the morning and the sky is going to be blue. It's as much a part of reality as, as, as life actually is. But as kids, they don't have all of that um, negative baggage that they're carrying around to attach meaning to death. Whereas for us, we have to do that because that's what we believe to be the right way to farewell somebody. And the question really is, is it? I mean, you know, like as you were saying, do we do it well? Mm. I, I honestly don't. And I think that that example in your story of your kids is a classic example because it's the, 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 all of the, the stages that we go through, like, you know, from a psychological perspective of the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression and, and so on. I mean, those are supposed to be the, that's the, supposed to be the emotional scale of healing around grieving. But your kids got to acceptance which is the end stage of the emotional tone scale, they got to that right in, in a half an hour. Mm. Initially, it was, it, was, it was not so much denial as it was not understanding or comprehension because they, was too, they were so young. But they got to acceptance within minutes. But I think too, and, and you might agree with me on this one, is if that had been me um, in an absolute state of grief, having lost my sister or sure. someone, what I think I learned from it too is someone needs to watch the children, someone that can have a, a slight distance from it mm. or perhaps something so that they can be the role model in this mm. or the, the guide in this situation. Yeah. Because kids do feel stressed. They do feel emotionally traumatised sometimes and all sorts of things, particularly you know, another girlfriend of mine, her husband tragically died at 35 years of age. She had a one-year-old girl. And the, the trauma and the shock and the funeral was just unbearable watching her grief and the Mm. one-year-old not knowing what was happening Mm. Um, and so I don't know the implications on that but it's I think it's really important as as a community and and the human race should act as a community around death that Mm. every one of us needs support in different ways with different people who are perhaps a little bit better or a little bit more removed Mm. from the raw shock you know mm. and I say shock because even if we have someone that's sick and they're dying mm. I still have noticed and, and seen that you don't really know how you're going to react until you're in that moment yeah. um, and I don't think the the power of that really hits you until you're hit with that moment yeah I, it, the whole thing that you've just said now Kim uh, it's almost like you know when you've had a baby for the first time you go that's what everybody's talking about, you know. And so when you lose someone very close to you for the first time, you actually begin to experience what grief is, you know. And you, I, I remember thinking, well, I can handle this. But when I watch somebody else grieve, I can't handle their grief. Mm. Well, I can handle it, but it hurts more mm. than my own grief. So, you know, that, that whole thing is it you've got to experience to understand it um, and when you know you can handle your own grief 
then perhaps you can help people with their own. And, and that was my understanding all of a sudden. It was like this aha. I went, I can handle this. I can do this. I'm doing okay. I can get through this. I can get through the funerals. I can get through all the things that we need to do. But when I go to a funeral and I watch the loved ones grieving, uh, it hurts me more. I don't mm. know if you feel that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's normal, though, as humans, you know, when we're going through something ourselves personally, we're coping mm. because we're just going through the motions of it and we're coping and we know that we've got, you know, the, the internal strength for the most part to be able to get ourselves through the next moment and then the next moment and then the next moment and so on. But when we're watching somebody else suffering, it's only going on in our imagination. We're imagining what it would be like for them. And it's always so much worse because we're not in control. We've got no control over how that person's feeling because they're in a world of their own. I remember when um, I went through the Bali bombing and um, I lost my partner to suicide, Greg. I remember all of my family rallying around me, trying to make me feel better, trying to support me, trying to help me with my grief. But it was interesting to watch it because even then I was very aware of the fact that they were suffering more than me. And I could see it and it was almost too much for me to be able to deal with my own grief as well as dealing with their grief for my grief, if that makes sense. Because, you know, as I say, when you're doing it, when you're going through it, you're going through it moment by moment and you've got your own experience around that. But when you're watching somebody else, it's just, it's, it's an imagined pain and it's a level of pain that is way beyond um, what's comprehensible. So just seeing my family grieving for me grieving was unbearable. And it, it, it took the level of my grief to a whole new stratosphere almost to the point where I couldn't cope with it. You so know? What, what would you recommend then if... if uh, someone is grieving mm. what would you recommend that a person does to support them in that moment not grieve with them or look I you know I and it's a beautiful question Cindy because I think it's it's one of the most important things that we can do for another person you know there are a few things in this world that I believe are truly real and birth is one thing that is absolutely real and death is another that is real I seem to, you know, I, I tend to have this view that a lot of the stuff that goes on in between is just us filling in the time between the two, you know. But um, as, in terms of the human connection, supporting somebody during their grieving is, is one of the most powerful things that we can do for somebody. In terms of, of, of advice, I think the best advice that I would give to somebody is, to don't, is not to jump into the whirlpool of darkness with them. Because if you jump into that pain with the person, then both of you are in pain. If you um, are able to stay in the light side, not only are you a sense of strength for that person, but you're also an example of what's going to be possible for them when they get to the other side of their grief. So be there, support them, share the journey with them, but in no way jump into the problem and in no way jump into the darkness. Whatever you do in terms of supporting, don't try and tell people how to feel. Mm. We can never understand a person's grief. And to say, wow, I wish you could feel better, or come on, let's go to a party and let's try and make you feel better, or come on, let's go and watch a movie to try and make you feel better, or let's get you distracted to try and make you feel better, is invalidating the process of healing. To accept that the process of healing is going to take place and to simply walk beside the person so that they don't feel like they're alone... I think that's probably the most potent thing. And there's another key to this emotional tone scale, I guess, around death that I want to add, and that's fear. And I believe that fear right in the very beginning is the first response because all of a sudden life, as you know it, is no longer the same. And particularly if it's a close family member or it's somebody that you love desperately, all of a sudden the fear kicks in of now how do I live without this person or what does life look like without this person? And it's almost something that you can't even comprehend because you have no frame of reference for it. The person's been in your life for years or you've experienced them in your life since you were born, if it's a parent. You have no frame of reference for making that uh, or for reconciling that to reality. That takes years. That takes years of coming to terms with and accepting that that person's not going to call you tomorrow 
or that person's not going to come around next weekend. And it takes years of creating an entirely new relationship with that person. You never lose them and they never leave your life, but you just don't have the same physicality with them. But it doesn't mean that they're not there. The opportunity then is presented to us to be able to create a new relationship, a spiritual relationship that's always far more intense and far more beautiful because it's built on the foundations of nakedness where that spirit being can see you for everything you've ever been and you see them. You know, Dr. Brian Weiss, who is my favourite author on Death and Dying, he um, has a new book out at the moment that I'm reading and he says that the death of somebody that's close to you can actually be a gift to your spiritual awakening. Totally. And when I read that, I went, you know, my mum and my sister passing away and, and all those deaths we had was my spiritual awakening. Mm. And it was a gift to me as far as that, that went. And, and there might be some people like listening to this going, how can you say it's a gift? But I think you have to look past. Everybody's got to, we're all dying. It's our only way out. Mm. When you do it and how you do it. Who knows? Who knows? And I, I, that was for me the spiritual awakening. That, that belief, that reading of books, that I'd never really thought about it before. Mm. You know, it was just what I was taught in the Catholic Church, but that was really what it was. So we, we can also see things as a gift. And I, I know, Karen, uh, for you, you know, you've had a lot of grief in your life, but I don't think you'd be who you are today mm. if those events didn't happen to you. And the same with you, Kim, and, and your husband, Danny, you know, with the, with the death of Zara especially. Mm. It was, you know, it was a sudden death. You know, for me, I got to say goodbye. And I think there's a real difference there. Like, both of you have had sudden deaths, whereas I've had deaths where I got to say goodbye. I was there when my mum passed away. I was there when my sister passed away. And my, my sister passed away. I watched my sister take her last three breaths. Wow. And it reminded me of the first breath you take when you're born. It was weird. It was almost like the reverse. Mm. And, yeah, I, I watched it in wonder. And I heard somebody behind me crying. And, I, and I'm, like, not crying and thinking, should I be crying? But I was more in wonder with that last breath mm. than I actually was about, oh, she's gone. Yeah. It's, it's amazing you say that. I, I read a book uh, by a man called John O'Donoghue, an Irish Catholic priest, and he was no longer a priest, but... He was talking about death and saying how, if, if, what if we've got it all wrong? What if, you know, we, we look at being born as the, as the ultimate gift? What if dying is actually the ultimate gift because you're being born in another way? Mm. Um, so he was, he was sort of saying, imagine if we could turn around. He also said, and, and I think you'll really appreciate this, Cindy, one of the greatest gifts we can ever give someone is to be there with them as they die. And he said, there's, you know, people wonder what to say, you know. Apparently, he believes one of the worst things to say is, it's okay, you can go. Like he said, they're still in the grass. You, you have to understand that the natural human body reaction is to live. Mm. So the greatest things you can tell them is just how much you love them, how much they've meant to you, um, what they mean to you and your family and that, they'll always be a part of that. And I thought that was a really very special way that, that he described it. And, and I would say, if any of you are interested, to download um, off podcast or audible.com um, some talks by John O'Donoghue. He is amazing. His accent and the way he describes death, and this is probably going to sound weird, almost got me excited that we shouldn't be fearful of mm, it mm. because it is a new beginning. We just don't have any comprehension or... or human understanding of what that means so I thought that was a really special gift that he gave me and the understanding that there's something bigger out there who are we to judge or think that death is the end um, who are we to think that we know what that person experiences when they cross um, so I think it's a very important thing I think this education and I probably for me like yourself when I've had these death experiences around me and and I have this well, Karen you might understand this but the death of my pets you know, my pets have been extraordinary. Don't you love this? I don't know if the, anybody else can hear this. We have a dog barking now. As soon as you said pets. pets I did. I know. I it's did. hilarious, isn't it? Bless his little heart. <laughs> and he's loud too. Yeah. <laughs> but he's saying, yeah, we've got a voice. <laughs> 
But, you know, losing my pets has also been an extraordinary uh, moment. But I think, again, for those of us with children and having pets use the experience of losing them. You know, my girlfriend just tragically, her little cat got run over just last week and the two girls, 14 and 12, are distraught. And she said something to them, which I thought was amazing. They did a beautiful little ritual. They all wrote her a card. They got a beautiful box. They did a little um, a blessing and a prayer. And they had the close family come around. And apparently, um, Fleur said that even though she's been taken from us too soon, you don't think that God isn't excited to have one of the greatest cat teachers in the world coming up there now to teach the other cats how to be. <laughs> but, you know, to say, to say that to young children, I went back to her and I, in a text and I said, oh, that is the most beautiful thing you could have said because that's what they understand. That's how they would have... They would have now seen her life as carrying on, hopefully, and seeing the support that now her spirit can have with the other cats of the world. I mean, it that's might sound beautiful. a bit... But I think it's yeah. just divine. The... the- the whole thing that um, you were talking about with regards to perhaps it's our birth that we have, um, our death, and, that, and that's basically what I believe is that we pass on, we pass to something else. And I actually believe they communicate with us and they may not just communicate through mediums and things like that, but they communicate in other ways. And I, I know my mum had been gone about six or seven months and I bought a new car. And about three years after I bought this new car, I drive up, and I'd driven up many times to my dad's house, but I drive up to my dad's house, and he comes out the front door just as I'm, I'm doing it, and he looks at the registration plate, and he goes, when did you get that registration plate? I said, Dad, I've had the car three years. The registration plate has always been there. And he says, do you realise that that's your mum's initials on your registration plate? J-E-L, Janet Elizabeth Lovett. Then what was even scarier were the numbers. The numbers was the date of her month that she was born and the year, 637. Wow. Like, how does that happen? How, you know, that's a community. That, to me, was like... You were that, meant to have that yeah. car. Yeah, meant to have that car. But, but how we got the car was even weirder. Yeah, but yeah. I, I won't go through that. But it was almost like it was my mum communicating with me that yeah. I'm here, I'm around. Yeah. And another symbol for me, and I know it's your symbol and your symbol, and I'm talking to the girls, is butterflies. Mm. And a lot of people see uh, a butterfly and think of their loved ones. Mm. And so I think they do communicate with us, and we don't need mediums in order for them to communicate. We just mm. have to be open to it. Mm. And another was um, what I heard when I read all these books was songs. They're often the way they communicate to you, they may communicate to you with one song. And we was, I was doing my health retreat, and you two were both there, and we were doing the team meeting. And Karen had put all the music on for the team meeting. And as I'm starting to talk, the song that communicates my mum that she's around came on. I didn't even know you had that song on there. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was um, Chasing Cars. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, see, she's around. They're mm. around. And, and I think we've got to be open to them actually speaking to us, saying that they're still around. Mm. And I, I feel that... For me, it might be 40 years before I see them, but in their realm of time, because time probably doesn't exist to them, it'll be a, a blink in time. Mm. And we just have to see it that way. We have to, to see that uh, if, if, you know, if that is your belief and that, and that is mine, and it's such a strong belief now, I'm not afraid of death. Mm. Because I used to be really frightened of death. Signposts, signs are actually an incredible part of the journey, really, aren't they? I, I remember my, my beautiful grandmother passing away three years ago. I was just so gutted she died. I thought she'd get the letter from the Queen, I, and I kept telling her, you're going to make it to 100, and she kept going, oh, dear, I'm not sure. Um, she passed away at 95, and she immigrated over here to Australia from New Zealand at 91 years of age. So whenever people say to me, oh, I'm too old to do that, I go, hang on a minute, hang oh, on a minute. Wow. But my grandmother also always said to me, you know, Kim, you're going to be on, I believe you could be on the cover of magazines, you'll be on TV, I I want to hear you on radio, your message is important, you know. She used to sell lavender up at the rest home out in Kingaroy and she'd ring for extra copies of books and she was just such a beautiful advocate of mine. The the day she passed away that night, that was the day Fleur and I were on the cover of a magazine, it was amazing. 
And I remember being so, first of all, upset about her passing. Even though I knew she wasn't well, I kept thinking she'd pull through. So this one was a shock. But I remember being quite distraught, thinking, how's she going to see the magazine? You know, that was the one thing she gave me hope with, you know. And, well, my 10-year-old son comes in and he goes, well, we'll just take the magazine to her at the funeral. And I was like, oh didn't think anything of it we we drove three hours we got to the funeral and there was my beautiful grandmother at the end of the of the funeral parlor and and Taylor goes mum show her the mag like this and I'm just like oh my god and they were so okay with her body and with death and I'm assuming that's because they Mm. understood what they'd experienced with their auntie and we went up to the coffin and, and I was a little bit shocked um, again, because I just I don't think it really hits you. It's reality until you see it. And but then a relief came over me that she was no longer in pain. But Taylor goes, "Mum, show her the mag." So I literally held this magazine up in front of her face, feeling very awkward and uncomfortable. While my two children stood there like it was the most normal thing in the world. And then Jacob goes, "You know, Mum, put it, in, leave it in there with her. When she gets to heaven, she can read it there." And I thought that was such a a beautiful reminder and perhaps one of the gifts in this is, um, you know, listen to those around you when you're going through a grief process and, um, you know, maybe ask the person in grief, what do you need? Do you want me to talk about your husband now that he's gone? Would you rather not? Because that was one thing I also learnt with my girlfriend's husband who died at 35. You know, best we don't talk about it. Do we talk about it? Will it send her over the edge? Will Will she be? And she said the one thing she really appreciated was us keeping her husband's name going as if he was there and that was a really good lesson Mm. yeah absolutely I think I remember when um, I was right in the middle of all of my deepest pain and I remember talking to my sister and it was part of you know what you were saying earlier Cindy about you know there actually is a gift in the experience I was talking to my sister about it and and I'd lost you know person after person after person after person after person and My sister said to me, she said, you know, she said, I think you need to look at it differently. And she said, notice every time somebody passes, once they've passed, things are fine for them because they've gone on to a new realm and, you know, whatever is going to happen in their life is what happens. So they're okay. But the trauma is left, is is what gets left behind. And she said to me, notice whenever, whenever anybody passes, there's a massive impact that takes place on the people that are left behind. Apart from the perspective that it gives everybody where we look at ourselves and think, wow, life is short. Relationships are fragile. I need to make the most of mine. I need to be better with my family. I need to be kinder to people. You know, apart from the perspective that, that the death often or loss often gives us, um, you know, it really brings us back down to earth and brings us back to focus on what's important. My sister said there's always something bigger that gets left behind when somebody passes. And she said and it's, that's the impact that we've got to go in search of. What was that person's impact, the way that they died, when they died, how they died, why they died? Look at all of those things and say, well, what was the impact that they intended to leave as a final message on me? And if everybody that's affected by death or loss can look at that and say, well, what was their final gift for me? Then there's the potential of actually seeing that, well, hang on on a minute. You know, they actually wanted me to see that I was capable of doing anything and I didn't need them in order to do it. Or I am an extraordinary human being. They always told me that I was. I didn't believe them when they were here, so perhaps now I'll believe them. Or... It could very well be that life is short. So start making the most of your life while you're alive because life is for the living and we are left behind. And that was certainly the gift that I got out of losing all the people that I've lost was life is actually for the living. And as difficult as that is to get up in the morning the next day when you've lost somebody that you love, the world doesn't stop. But you wonder why, don't you? Like, I know, it I should. Thinking, it should stop dead still. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Why, why, when they pass away, why can't I, why is everyone doing yeah. the, the thing they were doing yesterday? Shouldn't they all stop? Absolutely. That was my question. And how can those Absolutely. people be laughing? There's nothing to laugh about right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. But I think that there's, an, I think there's a real opportunity, obviously beyond the grieving. There's a real opportunity to look at the way that the person died. 
and to look at the circumstances and there's a message in there. And it's even if it's a message that we invent or that we create, but it's a message that's empowering for us because, you know, as my sister said, we all die for each other. It's nothing's a mistake. And, and as hard as that was at the time for me to hear that, now that I'm 10 years down the track, I can see it and think, yes, I can see that to be true now. That when we pass, we pass with the intent of still making a difference in the lives of the people who are left behind. It's not for nothing. You know? Hindsight's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, it it's is. It's just beautiful. Hindsight's gorgeous. God, if you'd said that to me back then, I probably would have slapped you. Yeah. But right now, it's <laughs> yeah. fine. So that you've just brought up a good point. Um, they do believe that there's five stages or uh, tones in, in relation to death and mm. I think you bringing in fear is actually a very important one mm. um, so let's just quickly recap what those five stages are so that any of our listeners if they're in this they can actually get a grip or a, a hold on to something that they're in so so let's talk about denial, we've all been there the first stage of grief or loss now let's just say this from loss point of view it doesn't mean a death, it could be you know a loss of limb, it could be a loss of work it could be a loss of status, it could be a loss of money or a marriage or relationship Mm. so so let's think about this in relation to loss as much as as loss of a loved one so if we look at the first stage is denial do either of you remember in in any of the 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 losses that you've experienced being in that space I was in denial when my mum was was dying and I remember saying to the the nurse, the palliative care nurse who came around because she was had stopped eating and she'd gotten really skinny. And I just said to the nurse, I said, well, obviously the cancer can't live in there anymore. There's nothing there to live on. So let's feed her up on good, healthy foods and she'll be fine. <laughs> and you, you could see, you know, and I was juicing. I was, I was ready to start juicing for my mum because I thought the cancer's all gone. We can do this, you know. And you could see her looking at me and... and and then she went through very methodically what would happen if I gave her juice. <laughs> so I think that was a form of denial. Absolutely. And I remember after mum died, she died like just after midnight. And what was interesting is that we, we actually did put her to, to bed uh, and we all slept around her. And uh, she, she didn't want, obviously, for us to watch her die. Not like my sister, she was there. but she, So we were all laying around her and... I must have just dropped off and then I came back to awake again and I couldn't hear her anymore because she was breathing very deeply and I couldn't hear her anymore. And I put my hand up on her chest and I went, oh, you know, she, she's not there. But what had awoken me was my feet had got really hot and I'd been massaging mum's feet, you know, for days before she passed away and my feet got really hot and I think it was mum saying, you know, it's... It's time, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, wake up, I'm going. But what was interesting is that whole denial thing kept continuing because we slept with mum that night. Well, what else could we do? You know, we just all slept around her. And then I didn't want the undertakers to come. I wanted to, because I knew my mum, what she was like. I wanted to do her makeup. I wanted to dress her beautifully. I didn't want her to be in a nightgown. You know, she would have just had a fit if anybody had seen her like that. So I wanted to do everything like that. And I would go into her and I'd see her hands going blue. And I'd go, oh, Mum, I don't think you're going to like what your fingers are looking like. You know, just this, it is a denial because I'm still talking to her and I'm thinking she, she's going to, it's, it's a weird... Yeah. But, but, but maybe denial that they've gone physically, yeah. but an acknowledgement because according to some spiritual beliefs, the the, the soul, the spirit stays around for quite a few days mm. and, and that's what you're feeling and picking up on. Um, and so I don't think we should deny the denial <laughs> and we should allow it. Um, and I think it's quite beautiful that we are allowed to deny it and, and it is just disbelief. I can't believe this has happened. I, I expect him or her to walk through the door or I expect to get that job again tomorrow. I expect to be on television again or whatever it is. And you, and you get this thing for quite a while afterwards, where you go, oh, I'll just ring mum. Yes. Yeah. For a split second, and then you go, oh. And I think that's a part of denial. Mm. You know, that, that definitely is. So so if we've, so it's first stage is denial. I think we can accept that. Um, second stage, they say that you then get into anger. Why do you think we go into anger? Like, why is anger such an important part, or why is it even registered as such an important part of grief and loss? 
because on the emotional tone scale, the the the, the experience of anger is it's it's at a higher level. It's 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 closer to healing than denial and non acceptance. Anger generally centers around why did this happen? How could this happen? Why me? Why them? There's lots of whys that are unfortunately in our world unable to be answered. Um, so that generally tends to make people quite angry, and it, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to know why does somebody have to go? Why do I have to live my life without them? Why did I have to lose my job? Why did I have to get terminated? Why did I have to go bankrupt? All those sorts of questions, they don't actually have an answer. It just is what it is. And and when we can't find the answers, the frustration and the anger that, that, that occurs is natural and it's normal. You know, I think that... Um, the way that people carry out and play out that anger is different for everybody. Some people will internalize it and make them sick and other people will express it, which then makes them very difficult company to be in. Um, but it's the people who internalize the anger that it's the, that's where the concern lies because there's no release valve on that. And anger, as you know, it's, it's a hot energy. It's, it's a, it's a hot uh, uh, it's a very fiery and a very uh, intense. It's very intense. So if that's not released and if that's not expressed, inward turned inwardly, you know, results in depression and it results in illness and, you know, just a. So I, I think what you're saying is that we should accept that anger is a part of that's the healing absolutely. process. In fact, I like the way that you said it's it's at the other extreme of, of mm. what um, perhaps the internalization and denial is. So. So if we, if we, can we expect to get through anger? And if we do, what's the next phase? Like, where do we move to? Well, it's interesting that you should actually ask me that question because when I lost my partner to suicide, I didn't get to say goodbye. And, you know, it was very, it was very much a shock. And I was in complete denial, without a doubt. I mean, although I have to say I was in absolute fear and trepidation initially because I couldn't believe what had happened. I couldn't believe what I felt I had done to contribute to his um, suicide. And then what that was going to mean for me and his family and everybody, that was just just huge. I couldn't bring myself to express an angry thought or to even experience an angry feeling. And I've got to be really upfront about this. To this day, I've never felt anger towards him. I've never experienced the, lev- the, the, um, the, the scale of anger at all. I went straight from denial to the next phase, which is bargaining, where I was bargaining with God to bring him back, where I said, I will give up everything and I will do whatever it is that you want me to do. I will become whatever you want me to become. Um, if it means, you know, selling all of my worldly possessions and... Becoming you know, a monk. Beca- <laughs> becoming a monk and kissing people's feet, whatever, you know. And I just went straight into bargaining and I spent a good couple of years in bargaining. But as far as the anger was concerned, that one I, I missed that one altogether. And, you know, I look back on that now and I, I think it's it's a very individual process. Mm. Grief and grieving, it's a very individual process. And that's why we can't we can't walk the walk for anybody else. Mm. We can only walk next to them. I think there's a flip side to the bargaining as well and some people their idea of bargaining is that they choose to do something with the tragedy or the trauma or the loss. Um, a very good example here on the Sunshine Coast in, in Australia and on in Queensland is a beautiful boy, um, Daniel Morgan, was taken, abducted um, ten year, nine years ago. Nine years, nine years, nine years ago. ago um, murdered. Uh, but we didn't know this for a very long time and his parents who have become unbelievable vigilantes for child safety and they are now very well known in Australia. We have a Daniel Morecambe Day. Um, it, they, they now teach codes to children on, on how to create safety for them. So in honour of, of Daniel, I think what's extraordinary is that the bargaining side for them is I reckon they started to decide, well, how can I make his death mean anything? Yeah. Um, how can we serve others? And I think that's a very powerful place to come to when we lose someone. Um, they say, though, that once we get through the bargaining, I'll do anything, I'll, I'll take whatever it takes. And if we're still not getting answers, if we're still not feeling heard, and if we're still feeling very upset, or perhaps it's just really sinking in mm. that that person is no longer here or, or they're going to be here, uh, the, the next phase is actually depression. Cindy, did you feel yourself go into a, a form of depression, or did you have you noticed anyone else that's ever gone into depression after the loss of somebody close to them? 
You know, I personally, uh, probably denial was my biggest thing, uh, and then acceptance. And like, I'm just going through the stages with myself. Um, I did have some anger, and um, we can talk about that anger later. And it wasn't at my, my mum and my sister and everybody going, it was at myself that I wasn't able to save them. The bargaining, I, d I didn't go through. And, and the depression, I had have, I have little bouts every day where I would be by myself and I would think about them and I would cry. But it was a very private moment. I would never do it in front of anybody else. And it was only for a brief period of time. Is that a form of depression? I don't know, but... I. I when you know when people talk about depression, I don't believe that I've ever experienced that. Uh, so mine was acceptance, and that was just my way of getting through that. I think I did that every day for a year. Just that little, I'd drop the kids off at school, and I'd be driving home, and I'd think of them. I'd have a little tear, and then I'd be fine by the time I got home. I think that in it, in and of itself is the acceptance part, though where you do think of them and you know that they're not here anymore. And then, of course, it's natural that there's going to be sadness attached to that. I think in 20 years' time you'll think of them and you'll still shed a tear, you know. I, I think that that's all part of, of human nature. I think the, the problem occurs, particularly for, as we were talking about earlier, where people don't express that anger, where the anger's turned inward. Then they go into the bargaining to try to do whatever they can to try and bring that person back. And it's at that point they realise there's nothing they can do. They're out of answers. They're out of solutions. There's no options. There's nothing else they can do. Suck it up. It's all over. And it's at that point when there's no support and there's no ability for the person to be able to be expressing themselves or sharing what they're feeling, that's when depression sinks in. Mm. And depression is, depression is the experience of debilitation as a result of the experience. Sadness is something very different, but debilitation to the extent where you can't move, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't drink, you can't think. There's this devastation of darkness that um, surrounds you to the point where it, it's almost as if the life is being sucked out of you on behalf of the person who's been lost. So and here's it's a continual. Question. It's continual. It's not just That's a moment or say. an hour. It's continual. It, I was going to say it is a continuum. Here's Correct. a question for you both. Do you think then for some people who perhaps don't have that support or that ability to, to, to express them or to understand what they're really feeling, do you think then that there is a place for antidepressants? Oh, oh. note the silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I went on antidepressants and I was on antidepressants for a year because I was at a point where I knew I didn't know how to help myself. I didn't know how to save myself. And there was no chance that anybody else could save me either. Now, I'm incredibly expressive. I'm not an introverted person and I don't turn anything inside. But that process of my grieving and my pain uh, took me to a whole other level of, of, of dealing with what life had thrown me. Um, do you think then do, from a medical point of view mm. um, there is a place for them in the sense that um, for some people if it means I, I mean I, I would imagine anyone on long term antidepressants there's a problem it's bigger than, than the, the grieving or the process that they're going through I would imagine because being on anything long term isn't certainly can't be helpful but the, the feedback I've had from various therapists is that sometimes it, it's like a bridge they know they can get there, but they just need a bit of help to get over the bridge to be there. Is is that fair? Look, I've got to be really honest about this, and I, I'm, I'm very open, um, and I try to be as flexible as I possibly can be, having been through the experience of, of taking them. There's no bridge. Mm. It's not a bridge. And the antidepressants certainly don't help you do anything. All the antidepressants actually do is create a fogginess in the mind that is a distraction from the healing and you know um, it's not a bridge because the minute you stop taking the antidepressants and the fogginess lifts the pain's still there I took Valium after Greg died because I was just I was an emotional wreck but the amazing thing about all medication is that while it can debilitate the body nothing debilitates the mind and even though the mind can't sometimes function effectively it still functions it still does what it's doing so the antidepressants in my book um, while it, uh, it, it, it distracted me from my own suicidal tendencies enough 
for time enough to pass. Um, so in that context, was it helpful? Certainly, because I'm still here. But in terms of did it help me, did it support me, did it make things better? No, not at all. Not at all. The antidepressants didn't serve any greater purpose than a great counsellor would have served. And that's something that I strongly recommend is that, you know, I must have seen 30 or 40 different counsellors and I strongly recommend for anybody that's going through anything that's hard on them emotionally, don't stop looking for a great counsellor. Keep looking until you find the person who connects with you and relates with you and actually helps. You know, it's no good to just have somebody listen to you because you can have your friends and family listen to you. You need somebody who can actually help and be that bridge for you. Mm. You know, give you the stepping stones to say, put your foot here now and next week it's going to go here and then here and then here and actually give you the steps to heal. Otherwise, you know, the, what's, where's the learning? Where's the, where's the ability to actually transcend the experience? Not so, get stuck in it. And I agree with you entirely, Karen, because we were never given a manual when we were born. No. That this is how you experience this and this is what you'll feel and this is how you need to deal with it. And the way we do that is, is getting an understanding about this whole process. And whether it's a counsellor or whether it's through books or a friend or yeah. a kid that says something to you. Or essential oils or, or music or therapy or exercise. It could be anything, but it's about searching until you find it. And the medication stops you searching. Mm. You know, yes, it, it may prevent the, the, the problem, um, but it, all it does is create a hiatus. You've still got to... You've still got to deal with the, the problem. Solution. Yeah, you've still yeah. got to look for the solution. But how do you do that for someone who's so lost, so distraught, doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to know? But you can't do that for another person. Mm. This is the thing. This is what we've all got to get is that we can't actually be that or do that for anybody else. Every single one of us in this life, and, you know, it's just an analogy that I use, but every single one of us walks a very solitary path. No one else can walk my path. No one else can, can experience my path for me. Yes, you can walk next to me on your own path, and if our paths lead in the same direction, well, isn't that fun? You know, isn't that amazing? Fantastic. But we can never walk another person's path for them. All we can do is walk next to them, and in doing that, they feel supported and not alone. I think being told by you know specialists around us when Danny's sister took her life, um, we were told by someone, keep your antennae up. Because what happens with a suicide in a close family is that it gives other people permission to do the same thing. And I'd never thought about it like that. So I think the greatest lesson I got from that was then I started watching what was going on around me and who was being affected and how and my antennae went up, which was probably a gift in itself from the experience. Mm. Um, but I think then what it leads to, once we can see ourselves, we've bridged however that bridge, and I think the bridge is the most important part here you're talking about, which method we use, how we do it, yeah, and, yeah. and never stop asking and never stop supporting, is we finally do get to a place of acceptance. So the acceptance doesn't mean that we can accept the person's gone, but we come to a place of acceptance that perhaps they're never coming back. Or perhaps that we can be in a place of... Um, you become perhaps a little bit more spiritual, would that be a fair call, where you feel connected to them in a different way. What is both of your experience around acceptance of where, and, and what did it feel like when you got there and how did you know you had got to a place of acceptance? I think the, the point where I got to acceptance is I stopped thinking, oh, I could bring my sister on that or I could bring my mother on that. I don't think that anymore. It's, it's like your brain has clicked out of the fact that they've died and you still think that they're alive and for that split second in time you go, I'll ring them or I'll call them or I'll talk to them. And I, I believe it was probably a year after that I stopped doing that and I believe my brain had accepted it. You know, And look, I had accepted it, but it was my brain that had to accept it, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. So that was for me acceptance of it and peace. I think for me, you know, there are still some aspects that I'm still working on, um, particularly with losing Jody um, in the in the bombing. Your best friend. My best friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because to me, I've 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 never felt that she's not here. I've always felt that she's here. So it's almost like, how can I say that she's not here and then get to acceptance that she's not here when I feel she's here? <laughs> so it's 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 quite a it's a, it's a it's quite a dichotomy there. But I think the thing is, we never get over these things, but we do get on with them. And I think that by getting on with life 
allows us a level of of reassimilation back into the day-to-day functionality of ourselves. But we never actually get over it. We don't learn how to get over it. And as you say, Cindy, there was never a rule book given. So we never get over it, but we do get on with it. And we get on with it in a whole new way. And hopefully we get on with it in the new way of having the gift that we've been given as a result of that experience. So, you know, I feel like we've only just started the topic, but it's it's actually we're coming to the end of this topic. But perhaps one great way to finish off would be to say just very quickly for our, our listeners um, some quick things that you got you have got you through grief, loss, and the experience of, of, of losing someone. What would be some of the things that you have used that we could say that these people might go away and go, you know what, I'm actually going to start doing that? Well, for me, the first thing I did was read. Mm. I, I wanted to educate myself about death and dying. I had never educated myself on it. I'd been taught in an institution. So that's number one for me was educating myself and reading. There's so many aspects on it and just reading books and 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 I guess that was number one for me. For me, it was journaling. Mm. Um, my pain for me was too much and I felt it was too much to share with the people who were closest to me and I felt like they almost couldn't handle it. So I got loads of journals, big, thick books, and I would just pour my heart out onto the pages of those notebooks whenever I wanted and I carried it around with me. And interestingly enough, I still carry journals with me in the car next to the bed and here in the office. It's, I, I've, I've got one with me all the time because whenever I've got a thought or an experience, I want it out. And that's almost a, a release in itself. Oh, it is. It, it, it absolutely is a release because mm. it's, out of, it's, it's out of my head. Mm. If I, you know, if I had a choice as to where I want my pain in between my two ears or on the pages of a notebook, <laughs> I know what I'm going to choose. <laughs> and I think even Cindy, you know, for me going through aspects of, of tragedy and loss, I actually couldn't find the the strength to read or I was often exhausted at night to read. So one great thing I used to do was download audios and listen to people. So then when I couldn't cope or couldn't bear with it, I would get out and I'd go for a walk and I'd listen to people's voices in my head. I found that really, really helpful, Um, along with essential oils, obviously, for me. Uh, I use oils all the time and there's certain oils like lavender is obviously very soothing and calming, which can help you sleep if you're going through agony and pain. Then if you're having headaches or your head's so full with the why and how calm and it's not fair, a simple oil or drinking peppermint tea or peppermint oil is one of the best oils you could use to help with clarity of mind. But also because it's such a cooling oil, sometimes it can jolt you. So having a peppermint bath is quite an extraordinary thing to go and do that makes your skin feel very cool, which soothes down the anger that you were talking about, that fiery Mm, intensity of it. Mm. So peppermint's fantastic. And two other fantastic oils um, is, is frankincense, which is a very good oil, very spiritual, very healing oil, very deep oil for grief and rose oil so you can use and, and there's a lot more information on our on our websites for this sort of thing but I would certainly look at this which leads me into the aspect of self-care it's really important that we do try to take care of ourselves when we're going through a a really tough time it's probably the last thing we want to do for ourselves and if you can't and if you are a support person for someone else you know what run them a bath put some oils in there make them a cup of herbal tea uh, my grandma used to say a little hot toddy doesn't hurt either um but you know just get them so just show that you care so that they can learn to care for themselves again enough to push themselves through this and take food around as well oh yeah that's one of the things that i remember in the in the the, when there was a funeral at the catholic church where i grew up everybody took food to the family it it always happened do you know but and one thing i've always learned through grief just on that note is sad when someone dies everyone gets a whole lot of flowers and a whole lot of food what I love to do for, to support people is turn up a month later with a bunch of flowers and a, mm. and a casserole or something like that because in the moment they've got so much at them it's almost like they can't feel all the pain anywhere because it's just so shocking or so hard or whatever. Sometimes it's that month, two months or three months down the track. Even on anniversary, I will often text my friends close to me not on just their birthdays, but on the anniversaries of people that have passed away. And they so appreciate it. I do it with you, Cindy, all the time and and say things like, thinking of you today, I know it's a tough day, but I just want you to know she's here. And, oh, my gosh, the response I get from that is is beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, no, that's great. I think think the other point that we want to make really quickly is that we get counselling, you know, especially when we've got kids, Get counselling for ourselves and for our kids so that, you know, we all learn how to put 
these experiences into perspective for ourselves and for others. Um, and don't stop until you find the right counsellor. You know, I must have seen 30 of them and all 30 of them just irritated the hell out of me. They really did because no one could fix me. I was running, running around looking for somebody to fix me. But I finally did find a counsellor who fixed me and she was extraordinary. So they are out there, but just don't give up saying counsellors don't work because when you find the right one, they absolutely do. So and, and have people that support you around you. You know, it's really important to have people who support you. And remember, the sun comes up. Tomorrow. Oh, the sun always comes up tomorrow. Comes up tomorrow. So may, maybe we could ask our listeners to give us some feedback on this podcast. You know, what are some things that you've used for yourself? What are some things that have worked or helped you? Or perhaps if you are going through this process, what on earth do you need? Um, and perhaps people around you can actually, sometimes the best thing to do is to ask. Yeah, fantastic. So go ahead and leave your comments um, on the wellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to hear what your thoughts are and as kim said what have you done how have you supported or how have you been supported you know those are really important for everybody who's listening to this podcast and everybody who's going to be reading your comments so join us your professional reminders on up for a chat next week and be a part of the ripple effect that's changing the world This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.